You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 192 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Laurie Norris and Katie Grubbs. Hey, Laurie and Katie. Hi. Hello. Before we get started, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Laurie, why don't you go first? Thanks, Alexis. Hi, I am Laurie Norris, and I usually do pop culture-related things here on the, the CFP. I am in Athens, um, psychologically bracing myself uh, for the super cold front that's about to hit Georgia, that has hit the rest of North America, but um, it comes here last, and I am not good with cold, and my generalized anxiety disorder has started to catastrophize everything, so how y'all doing? We're okay. I maybe hold off on the freak out because James Spann said that the roads will be too icy for driving by now in Birmingham, Alabama, where I live, but nothing's happening. Like there's no precipitation at all. So it may fizzle out, Laurie. Um, listeners, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live, like I said, near Birmingham, Alabama with my husband, David Grubbs uh, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Christian University and uh, have recently become a qualified substitute teacher, and I'm going to be doing my first day of substitute teaching this week, so prayers would be appreciated. We will definitely be praying for you it's, uh, and, and possibly nominating you for sainthood. We'll see. I'll, I'll take that into account. Um, <laughs> Hopefully I won't screw up these first graders too much. I mean, if we as parents haven't already done that, I think you'll you'll be fine. Um, so uh, I'm Alexis Neal, and I am in southern Missouri. We are definitely also experiencing some of the uh, serious cold snap. It's uh, pretty unseasonably cold, even for us here. And I decided to double up on that with a head cold. So that's super exciting. But I have my green tea and I have my heated socks I got for Christmas, which I'm very excited about. So hopefully I will be able to be somewhat coherent and comfortable for this podcast. Um, I am uh, a lawyer by training, uh, working uh, now as a an elected official for the city part-time, but mostly I stay home with my two kiddos that I homeschool. And I am married to Coyle Neal of the City of Man podcast, the political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. So that's me. Um, today, we are talking about uh, the film... Gosford Park. Um, this might seem like kind of a random choice, but we are the mystery gang, and this is a somewhat mystery movie. So uh, to start us off, I'm going to uh, to talk about uh, and give you a little bit of context for Gosford Park. Uh, Gosford Park is a 2001 film directed by the legendary Robert Altman uh, with an original screenplay by Julian Fellows, and it was based on an idea developed by Altman and Christopher Guest mockumentary regular Bob Balaban. 
As with many of Altman's films, Gosford Park looks at first glance like one thing, a whodunit in the Agatha Christie line, while actually being something else, an examination of class, a theme that would be explored further uh, in screenwriter Julian Fellow's subsequent blockbuster series, Downton Abbey, which I don't think we've ever covered on this podcast. Um, The film features an impressive ensemble cast, including, uh, according to Wikipedia, two dames, two knights, and three individuals who later received these honors. So that's pretty exciting. Some of the more recognizable names to our listeners could include Dame Maggie Smith, Michael Gambon, Helen Mirren, Jeremy Northam, Kristen Scott Thomas, Clive Owen, Stephen Fry, Balaban, and Ryan Felipe. Um, there are a lot of big names here, and everybody, big name or otherwise, um, does a pretty fantastic job. The film centers around a hunting party at the country estate of host Sir William McCordle. The film follows the relationships among and between the denizens of the party upstairs and downstairs, the visiting gentry with their varying levels of matrimonial or financial well-being and their servants. Guests at the party include the hostess's two sisters and their husbands, the hostess's aunt, the host's cousin, entertainer, and real-life historical figure Ivor Novello, and his American film producer friend, a family friend and his wife, and two unmarried young men, young men possibly invited with an eye to the host's unmarried daughter. All of these guests, many of whom are dependent on their wealthy host for their livelihoods, bring with them various and sundry valets and ladies' maids. And of course, the estate itself boasts an assortment of kitchen staff, maids, footmen, as well as a cook, housekeeper, and butler. Um, when the host is murdered, the official inquiry fails to turn up the culprit, but visiting ladies' maid Mary McEachran reaches her own conclusions about what happened and why. Uh, we are not going to be able to go blow by blow on the plot here with something like 40 cast members and all their different relationships. There's a lot of threads here. So if you have not seen this movie, it may be difficult for you to track with what we're saying. But the good news is it's a great movie. So maybe uh, watch it and that maybe help you to um, to follow what we're talking about. Um, but that's a quick rundown of the film. Uh, it did win an Oscar for uh, Best Original Screenplay for Fellows um, and I uh, believe was nominated for uh, for Altman, but did not uh, ultimately get him um an Oscar. I don't think he ever got the best director Oscar, even though he was nominated something like six times. Um, he's well known also for his, um, for a number of films, but the one that probably he's best known for is MASH, another movie that looks like one thing, but it's really another. So anyway, that's a little bit of background about Gosford Park. I'm interested, um, Laurie and Katie, had you seen this before preparing for this episode or was this your first time and what were your impressions of the film? I saw this movie in the theaters. And I have VHS. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, when this movie came out in 2001, this was uh, Little Baby Laurie in Little Baby Film School. I love Kelly McDonald. I uh, loved her since Train Spotting. Um, still have a giant crush on Clive Owen. Uh, Croupier is a freaking brilliant film, and he is just captivating in that. So put that, those two. In a Robert Altman film, I love I love the way Altman does stuff, and I love I love what he does with massive casts because everyone's always talking over each other, and his sound design is so brilliant. So this movie I think was made for me personally, yeah, personally for me. <laughs> that that is that is fair. I'm really glad we have you because I did not ever study film, um, and a lot of what Altman does, I know. 
like I know a lot of it. I, I missed what's unique about it, and so I'm really glad that we have you here to pick up on a lot of the the technical aspects that uh, us lay, lay viewers might um, might not realize is, is special and interesting and unique. Katie, what about you? I had kind of an interesting journey with this movie because when it first had come out, I remember watching it. A friend wanted to watch it when I was an undergrad. So probably it was the year, it was probably in 2002 once it came out on like DVD or whatever. And I, as an undergrad, I wasn't ready for it because even though I have read a, a decent amount of mystery in high school, I was not very well steeped yet in the, the tropes of mystery films. I didn't get what was happening. I didn't understand why it was structured the way it was. And all I remember about watching it that first time, you know, whatever, 20 years ago, is that I was kind of bored and I didn't really understand what the point of all of it was. And it left so little impression on me at that time that I didn't remember the plot really at all. So when I sat down to watch it again this week to get ready for this, um, everything was kind of a surprise because I hadn't remembered the plot from the first time I watched it. And this time I loved it. So I think, like I said, I wasn't ready the first time, um, but now, you know, 20 years later, having spent most of that intervening time watching so much mystery TV and film and reading way more mystery novels, um, I think that I was ready enough to see how he was messing around with the genre. And I think I also, just as a more grown, mature person, was ready to appreciate the way the film is made and how many different people are you know, get focus and these moments of focus and attention. So I, I loved it this week. I have it, I, re I rented it on Prime and I have it for 48 hours. I might watch it again tomorrow. I just really enjoyed it. I am so glad you said that because I was, when you, we were talking about this listeners, uh, when we were planning this episode and Katie was like, ah, to this, this movie. And oh, I was so nervous that you were going to come back and say, you know what? I still hate it. And I was just <laughs> going to have to like break up with you as a friend. No, we're good. I, it was okay. great. And I, like I said, it was, it was too soon for me, I guess. I don't know. Um, but well, also it was totally different from the kinds of movies we enjoyed in college. And, but you know, my tastes are different now at 40. And so, you know, I, I loved it. I don't remember if I saw this in the theater. I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I don't remember how soon it was within, you know, within fairly short order after it came out, because I'm sure it was like, hey, uh, who done it at a British country estate? And I was like, well, <laughs> twist my arm. I guess I'll watch that. Um, not exactly a, a tough sell. Um, and I loved it right away. Um, not just because of how dreamy Clive Owen is in it, which is a lot of dreaminess. Um, but uh, I loved it so much. And and purchased it I have it on DVD and I have actually watched through the director's commentary and the screenwriter's commentary more than once and I am not a person who normally watches commentaries but I knew that there was so much going on more than what I was seeing um and what I was noticing and I like it was time well spent I really enjoyed it and maybe I need to do that more because I definitely feel like there was work that was going into the film that was going right over my head um, and it's always neat to hear how, um, yeah, how the planning and thought and everything went into, um, went into that. So I'm, I'm super, yeah, I'm super excited to talk about it today because I have loved this movie for 20 years and, um, watched it lots and lots of times and I'm super excited to talk about it. So, uh, with that, 
Um, let's start off by talking about, you know, we, we have covered a lot of different mysteries, the three of us. Um, how is Gosford Park similar to or different from some of the other mysteries we've discussed? Uh, specifically, who is our detective here? And is that detective, how is that detective similar to or different from other detectives we've talked about? I love this question because when we were talking about doing doing this and Alexis, when you came up with some of the ideas of what we're gonna have in our conversation today, I was like, oh, there isn't a detective. There's no detective. There's no, like, there's, there's no one in this movie. I completely forgot about Stephen Fry as an actual literal cop in this film. Um, like, to me, it was like, there is no detective. We, don't, we never know anything. And so rewatching it, I now see what you mean about Mary, because Mary is the closest we get to an audience surrogate and someone who is willing to say things out loud instead of just allowing them to be subtext. And that's kind of what we need for a detective, even though I'm not sure I would classify her as one. I would agree with that. I think she she definitely has the kind of um, it's it's interesting, though, because she she does. She is a, a stranger to this particular house, but also to a lot of the um, to the way that things are done in a big country house because she's, you know, just recently become a lady's maid. And it's actually kind of interesting because a lot of times our female detectives, somebody like Miss Marple, um, there might be you know, kind of woman's knowledge. We talked a lot about that knowledge of how things happen and that's the key to understanding things. But with Mary, she doesn't know. Any of that. She is an out, kind of an outsider, but she doesn't know any of that stuff. And that's why she's kind of an outsider is because she doesn't know how things work in a big fancy country house. And so I think, I think Laurie's right that her true strength is si simply observation and the willingness to go there, ask questions and, you know, try to figure things out and even by talking directly to people like when she confronts Clive Owen's character Parks um yes. Parks Robert Parks it's not confusing at all that everybody's known by their master's name below stairs but they also have their own name and sometimes <laughs> it's, and it's, and it's the first name but sometimes it's a last name um but yeah you know she she goes to confront him and so I think that that's her her she's a nice I don't know if they did that on purpose but she's kind of a nice subversion of the you know, woman detective because she doesn't know all the esoteric below stairs knowledge, but that's in the end, it doesn't matter. And she still figures things out. Right. She's, she is very innocent and, and, uh, and in fact, sometimes draws the wrong conclusions based on what she has, um, has observed. So for example, she sort of witnesses, um, part of a romantic tryst and makes assumptions about who's involved with that, that end up not to be, um, not to be accurate. So she's sort of unreliable some of the time, but yeah, her, I think I would agree with you that her, her greatest strength is that she is watching and listening, um, detecting. I mean, that's kind of what she's, she's doing is she's, she is like everybody else trying to figure out what's going on. Maybe a little more so than some, some people don't seem to care what happened, but, um, she's trying to figure it out and she's watching and listening. And I, I was wondering if part of, her strength because she is an out like she's an outsider from the perspective of the the gentry the nobility the the upstairs crowd uh, because she is a servant but then she's also an outsider among the servants because she's literally from not not part of the household she's she's a visiting servant but she's not even 
on the same footing as the visiting servants because she's a new servant and not very experienced. In fact, this is her first time ever um, serving her mistress on a visit to a house like this. So she's really, you know, out of her depth there. And then because she is Scottish, that's sort of another level of removal for her. Um, you know, it's 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 fairly minor, but they, they point out that like normally a woman in her position would be addressed by her last name. That's the way that they're treated professionally is the ladies' maids are addressed by their last name when they're dealing with their their mistress. Um, and but that because her last name is this Scottish name that's difficult for her mistress to pronounce, her mistress calls her by her first name, this more familiar, informal, uh, less respectful form of address because she is in other in this way. And so she's, she's definitely removed on multiple levels from everyone else and, and outside of other people. But there's, um, so one of the things that, that Altman talks about doing and, and fellows I think talked about doing um, in the film is that everything we ever see, we see only if there is a downstairs person watching or present, right? We only see the bits of upstairs if there's a servant around. Like those are the pieces. They are our lenses through which we see everything we see. It's only when they're present that we we see anything. Um, and there are, is at least one time, and I think more than one time, where the upstairs folks basically say, oh, it's no one when they're surprised by or realize that someone from the downstairs crowd is is nearby and observing them. Um, and so, of course, the part of what we see is that the downstairs crowd knows all kinds of stuff because they are ignored and they are treated as no one. And they have actually all of this information because they're always around. We can see this whole story just through their eyes because that's how omnipresent they are and how much they're ignored. But she also, because she is even more removed as an outsider, there is this, she can be there all the time watching and nobody pays any attention. So her invisibility because of her relative unimportance enables her to see and hear things uh, so over overhearing two of the upstairs folks talking about different people, and that's how she starts to put piece together motives and connections between, between different characters. So, so yeah, it doesn't seem like she has necessarily special skills other than her her very status enables her to overhear things. She has the ability to listen and to piece things together, but a lot of it is that she's just there. The only, the only exception I could think of is because she's Scottish, she also knows what a real Scottish accent sounds like. And that does help her in in, uh, in piecing together some of the information that comes to light. Um, do we do we want to hear talk about anything else about Mary or can we are we ready to move on and talk about a diff, some of the other female characters? Well, Mary's connected to all of them. Well, yeah, so, that certainly is true. I think maybe we start by the one with the ones that Mary has the, the biggest connection to. Do we want to go upstairs or do we want to go downstairs? Well, let's go ahead and talk because um, everything's so interconnected here. I think it's going to be difficult to sort of silo anybody. Uh, so the, the primary person that Mary builds a relationship with over the course of the film, um, she comes in only having a relationship with her mistress and it's a, not a particularly close one that does change some over the course of the film a little bit, but part of what happens is that she befriends one of the maids at this house, um, Elsie. And then we see a lot of the film focused on Elsie's, uh, story and, and development and her relationships. So, um, Laurie, did you want to talk about some of Elsie's relationships I find Elsie to be this really fascinating character, and um, I've, I talk about her a lot. Uh, Emily, no, not Mortimer. 
Watson. And thank you. It's like, not, don't waste all of the podcast trying to remember her last name. Um, Emily Watson is an amazing, an amazing actor. And what she does with like little looks and just um, her expression, I think is super appropriate for an Altman um, world. So Elsie, not a lady's maid, is a housemaid. So she's not called by her last name. She's a step down from an actual lady's maid, but she has to do some work for the daughter of of the house. Uh, She is a little bit more feisty, a little bit more assured of herself, um, but doesn't have to have quite as much responsibility as, um, say, the, the head maid or a lady's maid. So she's a little, I think she gets to be a little bit freer with her personality than some of the other characters, um, which is why our audience surrogate gets to meet her. Because can you imagine if um, Mary had to share a room with Lewis? How boring would this movie be? Um, oh my gosh, that's right? a really good point. It would be so dull. <laughs> yeah, so Elsie, part- partially because of her, her personality is... <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit more fiery, a little more spunky. She has in the past attracted the attention of the philandering owner of the house and has a relationship with him. Um, not a particularly, I don't want to say intimate because they do have a physically intimate relationship, but it's not, like she is not under any illusions about the nature of it. Um, but it gives her, it, because she is, sleeping occasionally with the the master of the house it gives her she removes she's she's unable to be objective then about her feelings about the lady of the house so she gives really really biting descriptions of all of the women upstairs um she's she also ends up in uh how do i want to do spoilers with this because i'm not I don't know how to. I mean, I I feel like spoilers yeah. should be fine because this movie is like twenty years old. Most of our it's the age yeah. of our listeners. I, yeah, and it's going to be like, unintelligible without spoilers. Yeah. Okay. I, spoil <laughs> with abandon. Just spoil it. It's fine. Okay. Thanks. Because you could see how twisted my tongue was getting in the knots I was trying to work around. Okay. So Elsie ha- gets herself fired by talking out of turn at dinner, calling out the wife of Michael Gammon's character. Um, like, how very dare you? You know Billy's, oh, oops. And um, from then, flees. But they're all trapped in the house, in all this awkwardness, when his philandering relationship is now sort of out in the open in front of everyone. But it's being out in the open in front of everyone and the tension that that caused, which sets up the opportunity for him to be murdered. Dun, dun, dun. So, um... Elsie, I think also the movie doesn't really draw on it. I think Elsie feels a lot of guilt for her poor timing of that because she's intelligent enough to recognize that it was her behavior that provided the opportunity for the murderer to act. And I think that's interesting because she doesn't, she she says explicitly he doesn't, William doesn't love her and she doesn't love him. She didn't mind him. And she was kind of assumed that it was part of 
like just being a servant and she's, you've got to put up with it. And if it's, and if she's going to have to have sex that she doesn't really want, at least be with somebody who talks to her in a nice way. And so she also might have gotten him killed, which is a really complex mental state for her to be in. And I think Emily Watson portrays that beautifully, just like the flick of her eye and the way she gets cigarettes, uh, like tobacco particles off her tongue. I I will say about that though, um, it was a little bit. I had a little bit of trouble with that with that big scene because she she kind of has this moment where she gets so upset by the way that admittedly Lady Sylvia is berating her husband publicly that she kind of has this outburst. That, but that particular that particular behavior suggests to me more of an emotional connection than she seems to have with him after he's dead. Yeah, like, she claims she didn't have one, but clearly like she, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I I I bought I bought it in the moment, but then, you know, after he's dead, she seems to, you know, be kind of, I don't know, she seems to to if you like you said if anything there's like kind of a a little bit of guilt that it happened at all, but she doesn't seem to be like like compare her behavior with, and I and I keep mixing up two of the sisters because they both have L names. Compare her with like Lady Louisa. Yeah. Seems inconsolable. Who I th- who it seems to be pretty clear to me that he was also sleeping with. Yes. Like so she's she has this like inconsolable reaction that her own husband's like you, this is ridiculous. Um, you know it just it's interesting that and also I have to wonder too. I wondered by the end of the movie after it was over if Elsie knew, if Elsie knew the information, that, you know the cook downstairs talks about freely about how he's always treated, you know, servants who he knocked up and then just discarding their babies and all these things. You would think Elsie would know that stuff. And if she does know that stuff, it seems like a person like her might not be as okay. Might not think of him in that way with that kind of, you know, more benign, you know, well, he's, he's not too bad. You know, I don't know. I don't, like, I, there were a few, there were a few inconsistencies for me there. But I think as a character, she's top notch. Not least of which because she, uh, Mary's our kind of surrogate because we're kind of following Mary around and we don't know what's going on and Mary doesn't know what's going on. But also, Elsie's ni- a really nice for the viewer too because she explains things <laughs> clearly. Like she'll just say something and you don't have to kind of overhear it in the back of the room. Or so she's she's also kind of a I don't know what the word is. Not like an exposition fairy. She doesn't tell you everything in one go. But, you know, she kind of, and it's natural because she's telling Mary, oh, here's who these people are. Here's what this is. Here's why this happened. Like, and it feels natural, but also it gives you, the viewer, more information in a way that's helpful. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I thought she was fascinating. And I, whenever, whenever Mary had scenes with her, I liked those scenes. Also, and I just now realize this as I'm saying it, her scenes where it was just her and Elsie were the only scenes where I really felt like, okay, Mary's safe right now. Like yeah. I can just watch what's happening in the scene and kind of enjoy what's happening. And I don't think anything's going to happen to her right now. I think because- that was Elsie's character. Cause you see that as well when Elsie interacts with Isabel, yeah. the daughter. Um, That's true. There is the implication that Isabel has had a sexual relationship with one of the married men that is at the party and had, in the parlance of the film, gotten in trouble. And he is now blackmailing her about it. Is This is my, because no one ever says anything outright, uh, like, 
that this this is what I'm guessing. Um, is that, that sounds she, right. Yeah, yeah she no, that was, had yeah, a thing and now he's blackmailing but her. But you can't it. tell. To me, you can't tell either, even from context, if that was actually a willing encounter that she had with him. Right? It, the way, he, the way so that, predatory. The, yeah, the way he paused her and the way she cringes away from him. Either she was into it at the time, but now she's not anymore, or it wasn't even consensual anyway, which makes him even worse. He was the worst in a, in a film filled with terrible people. I hated him the most. He yeah. was worse than Denton. Yes. The fake servant guy who literally tried to attack Mary. Like, yeah. I mean, like somehow he's still, Freddie still seemed worse. I like, and why are they always named Freddie? The blonde guys in these movies, they're always Freddie. Like, <laughs> um, he was, he was the worst, but I know we're, but we're here to talk about the women. So I'm not going to get off on a rant about Freddie. Yeah. So, so like Elsie is a safe space for Isabel. Cause you see in their interactions, even when Elsie is still officially working, um, like, there's an honesty and a trust and not just a, well, you put my clothes on me every day kind of, of trust. And then in the scene after Elsie has, is, has been, well, I don't know if she was ever officially dismissed, but everyone just assumed, but she's wearing Brown now. So she, you know, she's her own woman. Um, and they have a fairly honest conversation about how no Elsie isn't pregnant and, and Isabel says, well, you were always smarter about that than I was. Like, you could tell that Elsie had been a source of comfort, like honest comfort, and not just, I will put your clothes on and hand you a handkerchief when you need it kind of comfort for Isabel in, frankly, a really messed up family. So she desperately needed somebody like that. Yeah, she seems more motherly than Lady Sylvia, too. Lady Sylvia's own daughter. Yeah. Not that that's a high bar. Um, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. I mean, I think it is interesting because you do see that that universality of female experience th- that across the class lines, women who might not otherwise seem like they have much in common, able to connect over shared experience. Although part of it, like I, I'm, I'm a little torn as to how much of that is we are walking similar paths or we are, you know, we are two sexually active women in this time when because of our circumstances, we are not like not permitted to be openly sexually active. Um, like part of it is bonding over that. And then part of it is that, that Isabel has such a vacuum of relationship and comfort in her life that, that maybe she would have connected with Elsie, regardless of that shared experience that they have because Elsie is a safe, is, is a safe space. Um, so, um, I think it could go either way. And I think it's interesting because in their case, their shared experience as sexually active women seems to create a bond between them. But we also see times when that is not the case. Um, and it's interesting because her her own mother, like she goes to Elsie as another woman who is sexually active in ways that are culturally taboo. But her own mother is also sexually active in ways that are culturally taboo because her mother is regularly having affairs with visiting guests servants um but and given that isabel is not laboring under any misapprehensions about her father's philandering i kind of assume she knows her mother is also philandering but given their relationship she's going to go to elsie for that bond and that advice and not hey mom you know what it's like to have illicit sexual relationships let's talk about that she's not doing that um, but then downstairs, you have you've come to find out that the housekeeper and the 
Cook, who have been at uh, at odds for decades, um, are actually sisters who were estranged because both of them were impregnated by the host of the house when they were working for his uh, for him in his factories. Um, and one of them, uh, they both were, were impregnated, and one of them gave up her baby for adoption because she felt that was the best course of action for the baby, and the other kept her baby. And because of that, they had been basically enemies since that time. Um, and so in that case, you had a very shared experience um, that was the cause of a rift as opposed to a bond. Um, and so I just I thought that was a really interesting presentation of a phenomenon that we still see today um, as women face challenges and respond to those challenges and how that can lead to strife as often uh, strife and alienation as often as it leads to connection and bonding, like things like the mommy wars or how to deal with um, with questions around reproduction or how to deal with uh, decisions around parenting. All of that we see sometimes people drawing together and sometimes people becoming enemies because they dealt with their shared experience differently. Does that mean that we solve the world's problems through um, murder? Because uh, the sisters kind of, you know, make up at the end after murder. You know, I I was thinking about why it is. because So at the end of the movie, basically what has happened is, is that the housekeeper is the one who gave up her baby for adoption. And it turns out that one of the visiting servants is, in fact, that child. Um, and spoiler alert is planning to kill the host because he knows the host is his father. He thinks his mother, the housekeeper, is dead. He doesn't know that she's still in the picture. He wants to kill his father because he knows his father abandoned him at this orphanage. Um, he is unable to commit murder because it turns out that his secret mother, the housekeeper, commits it before he is able to so that he will not have committed murder so that he cannot be uh, in trouble with the law if he's ever discovered. Um so the cook is the one who who kept her baby, lost her job, kept her baby. The baby died. Um, and so they have been in, in, you know, like I said, enemies for just absolute decades. Um, and at the very towards the very end of the film, they have this beautiful reconciliation where the, the cook says, I realize now that you did what you did because you wanted your child to live and to have a life. Um, and it it's always a little like you didn't realize that at the time, like it's been, it's been a long time. It's taken you a long time to get there. And I, I think that it's not so much the murder. I think it's just seeing parks and seeing he is alive and he is healthy and he is well. And, and actually seeing that her decision in that way paid off. And maybe that's really why um, Mrs. Croft could actually reconcile and she could see her sister suffering and sometimes suffering has a way of reconciling us in a way that, that just sort of cool distance and and repressed heartache doesn't doesn't elicit from one another. Yeah, uh, Croft was able to see like a mirror of her own experience instead of just the 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 how could you make that decision? Oh, what right? You it was hard on you, and I've I've not I've intentionally not been paying attention to that. Um, right, because so even I, a few you know, minutes. Even a few minutes before, she's talking to the the kitchen maid who is um, also engaged in a sexual relationship with some of the visiting young men um, and kind of get the implication that this is not atypical for her, right, that, that, that she carries on this way often. Um, and she says that she would uh, she would never give up her baby, not just to keep a job. And the cook even says, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Like, So she's still even in the film, in the time frame of the film, still feels like that is the right choice to make. 
but by the end of the film is able to acknowledge the difficulty of the housekeeper's position and that her decision was also motivated by love, even if her calculus kicked out a different answer. Well, and for all we know, this is the first time that Wilson has ever expressed emotion about this issue because she seems so tightly in control of herself. Right. You know, she talks about how her, her sister being angry with her, but, you know, it's possible that, that, you know, Croft finding her, you know, like having an absolute come apart in her room is the first time she's ever seen her sister express regret. Right. And this yeah. like overwhelming emotion, you know, if, if way back, you know, Helen Mirren's character had been more visibly upset at saying goodbye to her baby that went off to the orphanage, like, you know, if, I, it's just that, yeah, I really enjoyed that last scene because, and, and I, but at, and at first I was like, well, what, why? Cause she says I've lost him. Like, you know, forever and I immediately was like well but why but the, but then when I thought about it I thought no and I kind of talked it out with David too because I was like this doesn't make sense like is there a reason she couldn't tell Parks hey I didn't die like I'm your mom but I, I get why she doesn't because if she does one she has to convince him that she really did believe he would have that, that she really was deceived right that the old man said oh he's going to a nice family it's going to be fine you know and if if she, you know the mom who died and none of it was her fault she probably thinks he would rather have that than the mom who was okay giving him up and, you know, years later, never tried to find where he was. And also David pointed out that if she reveals who she is, then he's going to know what she did. And now he's got the knowledge that she's the one who did the poisoning. And what does he do with that? Like, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's, and, and, and that's true. You know, it's a lot to put on him because at the end of the movie, he and Mary are the only ones who leave with a smile. Really? You know, like there's, it's not a happy ending style of movie, but those two, you know, seem to have you know found something in each other and he's happy because you know his horrific father's gone and he didn't even really have to do it because somebody else did it for him first you know what i mean and um had she revealed her parentage of him it might have been a different sadder ending for him yeah it is interesting to see the difference in, in clive owen's performance after um his character overhears bertha tell another of the of the scullery maids that stabber he was the stabber didn't kill him that it was poison uh it's almost as if a weight has been lifted off he smiles a whole lot more he's he's happy to help out he just seems like he's in a much better mood partially because i think his grand plan which was an elaborate attempt to get to uh mccordle and kill mccordle um it, it took switching jobs and all sorts of secret stuff um but he still didn't kill somebody like he doesn't have to live with that guilt he got what he wanted but he wasn't ultimately responsible so he doesn't have to carry that with him and and wilson i think because she gives this amazing speech when mary asks her why she did it and it's because about being a perfect servant is all about anticipating what will be needed before the person even knows and so that's how she knew he was going to that the parks was going to try and kill william and that's why she she intervened in advance she was going to take that from him not just to protect him from prosecution but to, so he doesn't have to carry that guilt because she's nothing but repression she can keep it right she's She's carried her own guilt for so long. Why don't she take that a little bit more just to let him have 
more peace. And so what he has at the end is peace and also a crush on Kelly McDonald. I want to talk a little bit, um, just for just for a bit, real quick, since you brought up her qualities as a good servant, and that's one of the themes that comes up a lot in this um, in this film are these ideas about what makes a good servant, and should there even be such a thing as a good servant? Because um, this is something that I've thought a lot about, um, and I don't necessarily have answers, just questions. But uh, but I, I've tended to be fascinated by the good servant in fiction. Um, we've, we've talked about Lord Whimsy, Peter Whimsy before, but I love his manservant Bunter, um, Jeeves in the Jeeves and Wooster books, Bruce Wayne has Alfred, um, even, uh, <laughs> even in Emperor's New Groove, Yzma has Kronk. Um, I, I always love these characters, but not necessarily in a way where I want to be the character. I, I want to... I want to have someone like that, I think is what I'm, I'm resonating with, but I, I never know how to feel about that desire. Like, is that I want to be served by another person. I want to be like a God to them. I want to consume the whole of their existence. Um, or I want to demean them to like a subhuman pet status or, or is there actually a healthful desire behind that? I, I don't I don't know how to think about that because I do love those characters, but but the idea is a good character like that really their their master is their life, right? That like you don't you don't really think of Bunter doing things on his own, like he, he is you know Lord Peter is his world, he's not off doing his own, he's not clocking out really ever. He might go away for a little bit, but but really his whole world is is this person he serves, and I don't I just I don't know how to think about why I like those stories. Is it is it something that I, yeah, am I is it is it like a derivation of like how we relate to God? We want Him to be devoted and hyper competent, but really our servant at our beck and call, or are we to be a servant who are our identification is told is wholly and completely in our Master that we serve, that is God, um, and I, we should identify wholly with with his interests. I just, I don't know. I don't know if this is an admirable relationship or a, a necessarily unhealthy dynamic. Do you guys have thoughts on all of this? Can you help me work this out? I kind of have a thought about like, if, if we're looking at these relationships, the master and the servant, I don't think it is really one, especially not um, the Wilson style that we want to emulate in any way. But all of all of these, like where you're talking about the servant for whom their master is their whole world, it is all they can do is work for the 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 master. That feels more like God and angels, whereas God and humanity as a creation. The biggest difference between humanity and the angelic and and all of the, you know sort of myth of Christianity is that humanity has this choice the ability to say no, to turn away from God, which is then what makes an act of faith truly powerful. And when that happens with angels, according to, you know, the stories, well, we get morning stars, right? Um, but with people, it's, there's no unforgivable sin. There, like, there's always an, an ability to turn back around. So I think having the kind of blind devotion that shows up in these characters is not really healthy as in a humanity to divinity um, model. 
Now that might, I might also be saying this because I'm disturbed by the, uh, the class politics of devoting one's life to your boss. Like it kind of skeeves me out. I think it depends too on, I get what you're saying. And I, and I, and I do think that, that choice is key though. I think in a lot, with some of the best kind of master servant relationships in fiction, I think it works for me because there's a choice. I think, I think that, um, I think whimsy and bunter are the best example because, and you don't find this out till the very end of all those books. Busman's Honeymoon is when you finally, you finally get the story of how Bunter and Lord Peter, like how they got together before that, there's just vague references to being in the army together. Right. Um, But in the case of those two, you know, they served together in the army and yeah, whimsy was an officer. Bunter was, you know, probably, at a lower level. Um, David says the subtext of those stories is that he was his Batman. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, maybe he was, but you know, he, uh, he, or he was like a footman or something before the war. And, you know, whimsy's like, Hey, if we, you know, if we both make it out of this alive, you should come and work for me. And that's kind of all that's said about it. And then, you know, a lot of time passes and Bunter comes and comes, just shows up one day and it's like, I'm here to do the job. Like, so in that case, he made, he made a choice. And I, the thing I like about that character too, is the way that Sayers wrote it. He doesn't necessarily, you're right, uh, Alexis, you don't see necessarily his own interests, but some of the things that they do, it is clear which parts of the detective work are most interesting to him, namely the photography. He's the one subscribing to the photographic magazines. He's the one who's the real expert in photographing things, taking fingerprints. Like he's almost like a forensic tech for Lord Peter, who is more cerebral. And, you know, um, he and he's not, um, you know, he and he'll infiltrate. Um, and I actually was going to bring this up in because uh, we were talking about all this below stairs stuff and strong poison. Lord Peter sends him to very deliberately make the acquaintance of and kind of worm his way in to the below stairs household of this guy that they suspect. Irk you heart. He's like, we need to we need to get in there and we need to talk to the cook and the and the maid. Can you do that? And Bunner's like, I can totally do that. And he worms his way in, like you know, because because he can get information that Lord Peter can't get, and that ties back to the movie too, to the way that Maggie Smith is always pumping Mary for information, because she knows the best gossip is downstairs. And um, I which I can't believe we haven't mentioned Maggie Smith till now. Like, um, because <laughs> she's the best character in the movie. Not, I mean, not like as a person. She's the most entertaining to watch, um, in the whole film because she's this weird. She's this weird mixture of somebody who's not completely mean all the time, because she could be nice to Mary. But I like that they very deliberately give you these moments where you see they have to stop the car and Mary has to stand in the rain to open something for her, and there's no thank yous. Or, you know, she insists it has to be one shirt. Mary's up all night washing the shirt in the morning. She's like, just kidding. I don't want to wear that shirt. Like, she doesn't seem to have any idea of how hard Mary's working for her. You know. Yeah, um, she actually complains that uh, Mary should pay her because she has to. Tr- it, she's working so hard to train Mary. Oh, I know. Which, and that's, that's, I don't know if that was meant to be, but that's also a callback to Miss Marple. Because Miss Marple would usually have, get inexperienced young girls and train them by and she would employ them and they would work for her till they were more skilled and then they would usually go into better households but when Miss Marple does it it's it's a kindness right like she's not just looking for a cheap servant um I thought that was interesting too um but it also ties into this idea of choice because even though she sucks really as as a as a, a kind of master for Mary to work for in the end Mary makes the choice to be discreet 
and to not rat her out when she could. She could tell the stupid inspector the truth that, yeah, he was going to cut off her allowance and she totally knew that, but she chooses not to. Like, and so that was interesting too. Like she's, but it's clear that Mary's making the choice to do that. She doesn't feel like she's trapped. She doesn't feel like she has to say that. Um, so I just, I thought that was kind of interesting um, the way that that worked out. Well, and that does seem to be the basis because the um, Aunt Constance, Maggie Smith's character, she knows that Mary made that choice. And so she, she, that, that it's an interesting point, that idea of re recognizing that autonomy that Mary had in that one specific area and that that autonomy was exercised for her benefit freely um, that maybe is the basis for the slightly warmer relationship that they have by the end of the film. Um, although even then there, it's not a relationship of peers, right? Like, and that's why I said, it's almost like a human pet. Like there's that affection where we say our pets love us and we love our pets, but like our pets are not people. And like, we know that. And, and I wonder if there's that, some of that dehumanizing that goes on where you have genuine affection for this servant, but still this view of them as subhuman or or less than. And I think when you see those better relationships like Lord Peter and Bunter, you do seem to see more of that mutuality of humanity, the recognition of the mutual humanity um, in each other. So in the case of Lord Peter, recognizing the strengths and abilities and interests that Bunter has, um, and maybe that's part of it, that respect and that, and that affection. Um, and engaging with with that servant as a person and not just set dressing or, you know, the supporting actor in the story of my life. You know, that that kind of feeling that, that yeah, I think we all have, but I think sinfully, right? Like, we all want to be the, like, in our life, like, we are the, the lead actor, the protagonist. We don't think of ourselves as the antagonist of somebody else's story or the supporting actor or fifth, fifth woman in restaurant or whatever. Um um, we want to we want to be the center and having that kind of servant relationship can really feed into that. So if we can recognize that humanity with respect and affection, maybe that's maybe that's part of what makes it less unhealthy. I don't know. It, it, well, it's and I it's think, just it's tricky. It, I think, too, it, it, especially and again, every every relationship is different. But when it comes to like Lord Peter and Bunter until until Harriet comes on the scene late, you know, later on in the book series, it is very clear that Bunter's his person. Like the person right. he's closest to. Right. Like it and it and it, it like he's got women, you know, he has relationships with different women, but Bunter's the constant relationship in his life. So I think in, in a situation where there's a close kind of personal connection, even though and it's also clear at times, though, that's even more of a Jeeves and Wooster thing. Like with Jeeves and Wooster, it is very clear that Jeeves has the power. Right. Like he's he's the servant, but like. Bertie's so hapless and 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 so cowed. You know, if Jeeves says you're not wearing the purple socks, you're not wearing the purple socks. Like, you know, um, but and with that's not and it doesn't go that far with, you know, with Lord Peter and Bunter, but there are times when, you know, he defers to Bunter or whatever, you know, like so I think in in a situation like that, until, you know, Lord Peter's person he decides to make his life partner shows up on the scene, that's his primary relationship is with Bunter. And and that really comes through in how they interact with each other. And it's why when he decides to get married, things are real tense for a second and nobody knows exactly how it's gonna go 
because what's going to happen with Bunter? Because it's not just, oh, he's had the same butler for, you know, 20 years and butlers can be cranky. They don't like, they get set in their ways. It's not. It's a personal relationship that now has to make room for another personal relationship that's equally important. And it's, I think that's the key. And you, but you don't see, I don't think you see any relationships like that in Gosford Park, though. I don't think any no. of these servants have that kind of relationship. Miss um, Lewis seems pretty devoted and they goof on her for that. Elsie makes fun of her for being pretty devoted to Lady Sylvia. Um, but, uh, but none of these people seem particularly close. And I think it's George, the footman who kept creeping me out. I kept expecting him to try to rape somebody because he just has that vibe, you know, um, <laughs> the tall, thin footman, you know, but he. Richard Grant, they get on him for, he he gets jibes because he's clearly chafes against all of this. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he's not, uh, he doesn't have a servant's heart <laughs> to use the like Christian, you know, buzzword. Um, and he seems upset about all of it and he's not down for it and he'll do his job, but he's the one who, and he's the one who humiliates Denton once he's an exposed and he's trying to act like he's upstairs now. Like, he's the one who spills the hot coffee in his lap. Which, Alexis, I was going to say earlier, and I wanted to know what you guys thought about this. It never occurred to me until you said it that we only see things that below stairs people see. And that's that. And I was like, what? Because I never thought about that. But the one scene that's, but I don't know is it, if it's an exception to it or not. The second time that Denton comes to see Lady Sylvia to, like, spend the night in her room, they're the only two people in the room. And technically, he's not a servant anymore. Well, he's not. He's also not a servant when he's in there with Bob Bowman with um, Wiseman, where they imply that they they have a sexual relationship. So I think. Um, but he's playing, still playing a servant at that point, though. So well, te- if you wanted to get technical you, with it, if you look at that scene, um, it's very pointed. He does not speak until he's leaving at the end, giving a kind of snide remark about, "I don't think it'd be too." Yeah. Just- it would be an indiscretion if I can't. We don't want to draw attention. It wouldn't be safe or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so he's he's being like snide, and I think using the, the the fake accent not to maintain cover, but to like needle Weissman, who is yeah. um, trying to take advantage of their power, the power dynamics in their relationship. Because if he's the producer and and. and Denton's the actor there is a hierarchy there as well that um, is clearly being manipulated so I think he's in a liminal space okay well and I suppose even I suppose even though once he's been exposed as not being a servant though somebody like Lady Sylvia's not gonna see him as an equal no. Like he's still not. Yeah. Okay. He's well, and, and they make a point to suggest that he's between spaces. You're right, Laurie, too. Cause when he comes downstairs and try to, tries to apologize and nobody will talk to him and Elsie's like, they're not going to talk to you. They think you're going to be indiscreet and tell their secrets. Like, yeah, and then he tries so to hit on her again. Yeah. He's in a, so he's a man without a place. Um, you know, I, I really like the ruthlessness with which she shut him down when she was at her worst. That also tells you something about her Elsie. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a pretty brilliant like she knew what he was he tried to do to her new friend. And so she intentionally messed with him. Yeah, that's true. It was great. Well, we are trying to humiliate him. We are uh, we are coming up on time. Um, So let's take a quick see if we can do this. Take a quick minute and talk about. Um, we've talked about this some already, the idea of of what the film has to say about the self and autonomy and and how how the servant master class relationship can mess with that some. 
I did want to take a quick second to think about who in this film has power, who's happy, who has freedom, autonomy, individuality. Um, and we've kind of alluded to this some already, that Elsie um, is one of the, certainly the most independent of the downstairs folk and seems to end the film uh, as one of the the happier or at least satisfied characters. Um, and, and you guys have already mentioned that... Um, Mary and Robert seem uh, happy as they are leaving Robert because his, his objective has been accomplished um, and McCordell is dead. Um, and also he met Mary and Mary because she's figured out the mystery and, um, and the guy that she thinks is cute is maybe not a murderer after all. So that's exciting. Um, but, but what else, what else do we see as far as the relationships and power and, and happiness and autonomy? Any quick thoughts before we close? One thing that I really like about this is that it's clear that all of the people upstairs are miserable, that money cannot buy you happiness at all. That's true. Yeah. Well, and, and the, I will say the, the other two, the, the only other people who seem pretty happy at the end is um, Tom Hollander. Can't remember his character's name. I'm not even going to pretend. Meredith. Commander yeah, Meredith. Okay, Commander Meredith and his wife, because they seem to actually truly love each other. They're like the only couple in the movie that seem to truly love each other. And he gets a reminder about that from Dorothy, the like between maid or whatever. And they seem to end it happy, even though technically, I suppose he's still facing possible financial troubles. But you're right. Everybody else seems miserable. And he's pretty miserable up until the old man gets killed. But it's not because he's miserable with his wife. That relationship is good. It's a money thing. Yeah. And his and all of his problems were solved by really good jelly. Well, that and the guy, the guy being dead. Um, Jelly plus murder. Right. So again, made in the shade. (laughs) His, his financial downfall was, was, was coming when Sir William was going to take a step. And so that, that my understanding is because Sir William died before he had actually pulled out of whatever their financial scheme was, that yes. Commander Meredith might be able to then, so that he and Freddie are talking about their plans. And so several of the people who are, you know, Sir William's continued existence was going to be financially devastating to several of the characters. So his death at least preserves the status quo for them. Um, and in Freddie's case, maybe improves things. Um, and so, uh, so you do have that, but yeah, the, 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 the implication seems to be that he is mostly content because he's realized that what he has is far more valuable than what he lacks, that his relationship with his wife um, of all the marriages that are there, um, you know, he has he has that he has this this um, incredibly precious invaluable thing, um, and the financial stuff you can work through that. Um, but yeah, he's he is he has a better chance at being happy than Lady Sylvia or uh, Lady Lavinia or Freddie or any of these other people who are just deeply miserable and in many cases awful. Um, what about, uh, I also thought, uh, Mabel seems like she ends in a, uh, a, a more upbeat, uh, on a more upbeat note than when she arrives. So she's Freddie's unfortunate wife of common, uh, common blood who was an heiress of sorts, but then not as much as he thought. And so he just treats her with utter contempt the whole film. And basically by the end, he still treats her with contempt, but she has decided she's not going to put up with it anymore. And seems to have gained a, a modicum of self-respect. And that seems to be the reason for her um, increased contentment. 
Well, I mean, any anybody who gets to sit um, next to Jeremy Northam at the piano and get his undivided attention for a solid 20 minutes is probably going to be doing pretty good the next day. Yeah, yeah. good That's cure for what I was doing. Like, I love that. My favorite scene in the whole movie was the whole sequence where he's playing the piano and all the servants are like hiding and that I didn't realize either until they were that scene how many different ways there are into this room that looks like it's only got one door into it like there's all these kind of like little passageways they can come in when they need to and and yeah and they're all kind of hiding in all the different places and they keep getting interrupted and having to pretend to work and everybody in the room I was thinking about this all the servants are hanging on his every word everybody in the room who's like a fancy person couldn't care less like Lady Sylvia asked him to play music, but it seems like habit. You know, um, Maggie Smith's over it, <laughs> vocally over it, hates it. Everybody else is playing bridge. Nobody who's fancy cares, but all these servants are hanging on, you know, hanging on the music and they're just enjoying. And I loved that scene. That was my favorite scene. And I didn't know until I was researching it after I watched the movie that Ivor Novello was a real person. Yeah, I didn't know he was a, playing a real person. Yeah, there's a great disclaimer at the end of the credits right before they do like the ASPS, ASPCA kind of stuff is like, we we don't no one involved here actually thinks that Ivor Norvello was involved with a murder. We're pretty sure he wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's no historical proof that he ever attended a murder. I no, love it so though. There's it's, not. It's such a fun detail. And Jeremy Northam was perfectly cast because if you look at photos of him, he's not. It's not a bad likeness either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I, I love that whole scene. Yeah, poor Mabel. I like just, just the most pitiful. Um, I just kept thinking y'all couldn't find her a different dress in the extra dresses cupboard for night two and three. Come on. Well, and I think it's interesting. I was the, I think it was Julian Fellows in the commentary was saying that, because of course a lot of this with his screenplay is really just his lived experience. Like he'd be like, oh, this line, my, my aunt so-and-so said this line about, um, you know, uh, how much longer are you going to go on acting or, or whatever, all these, a lot of the lines or anyone would think you were Italian, you know, stop carrying on. So like a lot of those were like just legit. He's like, this is, I heard people say this, that's where it came from, what? Um, which was, which was crazy. But he talks about that, how like the pop culture, right. It's pop culture, right. It's not the people who are the, the, uh, the noble class, like they're not doing any of that. They're not paying attention to it. Or if they do, they're not going to admit it. And so all of those, those kinds of, of attitudes towards the films, towards the entertainers, absolutely reflective of his experience um in that in those circles and that yeah you would have the the servant class um and, and the other folks who would be really excited about the movies or the music or whatever it was um which is a whole other conversation about engagement with entertainment and culture and some of those things um but there were some really yeah maggie smith had some amazing one-liners related specifically to how she felt about ivor novello so that was that was deeply entertaining um, well, any other thoughts on what the film has to say about the self-autonomy, any of those things, before we go on to passing on? I think it is interesting the way that people, even like all of the downstairs people, managed to find a little bit of something their own. Like Elsie's got all of the clippings from the celebrity magazines posted up. And you see in Jennings, the butler's uh, room. He he and Wilson have nicer rooms because they are the heads of the staff and the ways that they kind of personalize their space, even as they depersonalize themselves uh, for their work. I, I really appreciate the way the camera catches pe the people insisting on having something that is them when uh, 
the social structure wants to do the opposite. Well, and you make a really good point there that I thought was really interesting, and it's a whole other conversation probably for another day, but um, there's a point where Elsie and Mary are talking about the gossip about the upstairs people, and Elsie and catches herself and stops, and she's like, why do we care about their lives? We should care more about our own lives. We shouldn't care so much about how William McCordell married his wife or how they picked any of that stuff shouldn't matter. And that's an interesting contrast to she has this wall full of clippings. And, and I mean, I don't know what the, you know, the um, the celebrity magazine situation was back then. But of course, today, if you're thinking about gossip about relationships and who is dating who and who we get involved with, knowing all the details about their lives to the ignoring of and and, and devaluing of our own, well, that's going to be celebrities. Like, right. So we've come around. We don't have servants that were all or masters that were all obsessed with all of the drama of their lives it's now the Ivor Novello or the you know Hollywood producer or whoever and now we want to know what are Taylor and Travis doing or um you know who who went to the Golden Globes with who or any of those things and so I thought that was that idea of celebrity and how it fits into our new masters upstairs that we're obsessed with that we're watching from afar and over invested in I just that was interesting I and thought she kind of layer when you were talking that and I was thinking about that when you were talking too about who has power and you know talking about you know everybody below stairs knowing everything that's happening with everybody above stairs I do think that you know the people working below stairs do have one power which is the power of holding information um because you know my favorite line maybe my favorite line in the whole movie the funniest line in the movie to me is when Maggie Smith says to Mary um, Lady Shrentham says to Mary, uh, one thing I'm not looking for in a maid is discretion, except when it comes to my own secrets, of course. Like, she doesn't, as long as she keeps her secrets, she wants to hear everything else that's going on downstairs. But, um, but then, you know, but, but she's giving, I mean, that's a vulnerability. Like, she's giving Mary, Mary has a degree of power because she knows Lady Trentham's secret. She could tell it or not tell it. She chooses not to tell it. Right. But, um, you know, and so it's it's an interesting attitude. It's like, you know, Maggie Smith's character is willing to let her own maid know her own secrets and trust her to keep them, even though she asks her to spill everybody else's secrets. And it's just interesting the degree that the, you know, there's a kind of, I don't know what it's, it's like an arrested power. It's a power they're choosing not to use because all these people who work below stairs, like you guys said, know everything. They see everything that happens and they tell everybody and then they all know everything that happens. Yeah, and, there's and, also that yeah. moment where Parks and, and and Mary are coming down the stairs and the, the scene opens with him saying, well, they're not going to give her a bad reference because then they'd have to explain. They're, they're going to give her a, bad, a good reference because then they have to explain why they gave her a bad one. Yes. And, yeah, it's like everyone knows she's getting fired because the, the, the master was having sex with her. But no one is is comfortable with that knowledge being out, so they're they they're going to lie and say, "Oh, it was great. She's just you know allergic to country air." Yeah, that that kind of because she's because she still holds that power, right? Yeah, if they gave her a bad reference. She could choose to publicize that information. So it's it's a kind of. Uh, it's not blackmail because nobody's asking anybody for anything, but it's just the knowledge that 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 information's out there. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, but and but that's the price you pay, I suppose, to be one of these fancy people. If you want servants to attend to your every need, you kind of have to accept that they're going to know everything about you. And it's just an interesting trade off. 
but yeah, I know. I think I think it's a good point, especially when we see uh, Stephen Fry's inspector come in and view the servants as potential sources of information, but not as potential participants in the events. Um, because, but, as he says, he's only concerned about people who have an actual connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was. I felt like that line was a little heavy-handed, but it's true. Like he has this kind of, which is interesting, especially that he's got that view. I know he's just supposed to be the typical useless policeman from like mystery fiction, but he himself is not fancy and high class. So it's interesting to me that he would be that myopic about the value a servant could bring to it. Though I was reading one review because I like to read reviews after the fact, even of an older film if I never saw it before, or you know. But I saw somebody in a review kind of comparing his much more capable than he is deputy to the below stairs people in the fancy house like yeah. the, de the deputy's right. not the inspector but he's the one who actually knows what to do and gets on with the job and i he's thought he's the one who saves the inspector's life because the inspector was about to drink the poisoned whiskey oh my gosh i forgot about the poison i because he, he cautions him about the fingerprints yeah we haven't fingerprinted that but i totally forgot that he was about to that's hilarious i forgot that that was the whiskey that that was the whiskey glass <laughs> yeah the inspector is out is as out of a farce a completely yeah. different film yeah he really uh, is yeah it, it yeah it's interesting I, I yeah i don't know what i was expecting but um it was yeah it was kind of funny well we are uh, over our time so we should go ahead and move on to our passing on uh so katie do you have a recommendation for us I do. Um, it is a very old indeed, very short television series um, called Mystery! Exclamation point, Campion. Um, and only 16 episodes uh, made in 1989-1990 uh, based on the series of novels by Marjorie Allingham about Detective Albert Campion, which is a pseudonym. Um, but it stars the lovely Peter Davison, who was the fifth doctor. And has been in, in All Creatures Great and Small and all kinds of other things. But he's a kind of a Lord Peter Whimsy-esque, um, high-class guy who likes to solve crimes. Um, and I'm recommending it tonight because he has a servant who's tons of fun, who is an ex-burglar with an extremely plebeian accent, who is not afraid to crush some heads. Like, So um, his name is Lug with two Gs. Um, so it's a fun little series. You can watch it you know, in a couple of days, they're, you know, kind of 50 minute episodes. There's only 16 episodes um, and it's delightful. So that's my recommendation is mystery campion. Thanks for that. I'm, I'll have to check that out. I've tried to find her books and our library system does not have them. So maybe I'll have to try and watch, um, watch the series since I can't track down the books without having to, you know, pay for them. <laughs> Laurie, what about you? Um, I'm going to rec um, recommend a series that seems to be the antithesis of what Katie just said. Um, it, it was a limited series on Hulu uh, this winter called uh, Murder at the End of the World, um, starring Emma Corrin. They played young Diana, I think, on The, the Crown, um, and their eyes are just, like, massive. They look a little bit like a deer. Uh, as... A, a young woman who gets invited to this billionaire's tech retreat in Iceland in the winter because she's written a true crime novel about trace trekking down cold case serial killer with her boyfriend. Yeah, it sounds stupid when you, I start describing it, but it's it's tense and Clive Owen is in it. He plays the billionaire. He's still dreamy. Um, 
uh, directed by Brett Marlin, who has a role in, in the show as well. It, and the the central detective uh, is even referred to as like Gen Z Sherlock Holmes. Um, and it's kind of weird. It's like you wrote one book, but uh, she has to solve a series of, of murders and her she's not really taken seriously because she's only like 26 or something and surrounded by very wealthy famous people in a bunker um it's it's cool it's got like techno fear uh issues and really fun performances and Harris Dickerson is in it and I'm I, I keep finding him in things and I like him in things he's he's kind of a weirdo and I like actors who are weirdos so yeah a murder at the end of the world awesome that sounds fascinating um so I have uh, a recommendation and then a recommendation that I haven't actually seen yet so I'm, I'm sharing it with you if you haven't already heard of it so that you can maybe enjoy it with me uh but my uh recommendation I haven't seen yet I just saw the ads go by Clive Owen actually is the star of it, but there it's a Sam Spade, basically fan fiction. Acorn TV is coming out with it. It just came out yesterday, uh, started coming out yesterday. I don't know if all the episodes are out, but it's Monsieur Spade and it's Sam Spade, but in France. Um, <laughs> and I love Dashiell Hammett. I loved, deeply loved Humphrey Bogart's portrayal of Sam Spade, but I am willing and often I get super attached to those original portrayals and get very grumpy when someone else tries to portray them. But I am here for watching Clive Owen take a crack at that and see how it goes. I enjoy him a lot. He's got kind of that laconic, grizzled kind of a vibe. And so I'm curious to see how Monsieur Spade turns out. And if that sounds like your jam, maybe you would also like it. And then not really related to the to the mystery side, but to the sort of film appreciation side, if you are someone like me who doesn't know as much about the technical aspects of filmmaking, I've really been enjoying um, listening to the Supernatural Rewatch podcast called Supernatural Then and Now, hosted by two of the guest stars of the show, Richard Spate Jr. and Rob Benedict, who played Gabriel and Chuck, respectively. Um, and they are watching through the whole series, but every time they do, they interview somebody connected with that episode, whether it's uh, a crew member or director or cast member, and they talk a lot about labors and choices and artistic um, visions that go into this process that I just was not aware of uh, as the person who just was a, a casual consumer of the show. Um, and so that has been fascinating for me to to hear them talk to the person who's in charge of going and, and finding set locations um, or the person who's in charge of designing the set or the person who's in charge of lighting or the person who's in charge of this camera or the other camera. So it has been for me through that like jumping off point of a show I already care about a, a great way to slowly build up uh, a better knowledge of what goes into making a, a visual art production. So um, if you're interested in more of that as a way to learn more about it, that's, that's kind of like a commentary kind of a commentary of the whole, whole series, but, um, and it's funny. And of course the, the show's a lot of fun, but supernatural then and now um, has been, yeah, an interesting way to learn more about, making television, which I did not know anything about. So that's my recommendation. Um, with that, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Laurie Norris and Katie Grubbs, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in next month when we'll discuss the story of the woman in the crowd in Mark chapter 5. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.